Well, we are in the book of Kings in the Old Testament, specifically 2 Kings, and we pick it up this morning in chapter 23 and 24, mainly chapter 24. We're going to see a little bit at the end of chapter 23. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open there with me this morning, right at the end of Kings. We're going to have one more chapter after this morning as we come to the close of this really wonderful challenging book. Second Kings, mainly 24 this morning. The beginning of the end. That's what we're going to see this morning. The beginning of the end. This section that we will read here in just a moment begins Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, God's people. It begins their rapid descent into judgment and exile. And that exile will culminate in chapter 25 next time, and that will bring the book to a close. So this is the beginning of that end, that horrific end that is coming for Judah. It is very much a rush into judgment. These chapters move at a very fast pace. It's very straightforward. There are no real details. There are no interesting stories. You might find it more boring even, but it's part of the point as we see this judgment coming to pass. It's as if one author said that this author of our book just wants to get it over with, (laughs) just wants to be done with this inevitable ending. And it does read like this. The promised judgment that is coming, which is what we're going to read of, and that's sobering. This promised judgment is inevitable and it is irreversible. There's nothing that can stop it from coming. It's what we've learned. Even under the best of reforms that we saw a couple weeks ago, or even last week under Josiah, the greatest king Israel ever had, even his greatest reforms cannot stop this judgment from coming. So Judah marches quickly to its demise. In our text this morning, we are introduced to four kings covering about 22 years. So this is how rapid it is. Four kings over 22 years. Now, the final events of Judah's history are intertwined with the geopolitical happenings of their day. They're inseparable from the happenings of other nations. And in order to kind of understand the events of this chapter, I want to begin this morning with a little history lesson, some historical context, more like a class for a moment here this morning. It's important because it's a a major point of this chapter to kind of understand what's going on historically here. So just just to remind you, in case you haven't been with us, The northern kingdom of Israel, God's people were split into two nations, and that northern nation of Israel was captured in exile, taken away by the great and mighty empire of Assyria. Assyria is the major power of the day. I'll show you this map. We've used this map many times here. They are the superpower of this day, and they're the ones that God has used to come and take Assyria. You can look at this little arrow here. That's where um, the nation of Israel is. It's that little slice down there in the Mediter- off the Mediterranean. That's Israel there, and God has used Assyria and those great kings with those really great names, Tiglath-Pileser III, Shalmaneser V, Sennacherib. Those are great names for kings. They have come and they have removed Israel and taken them captive and they no longer exist and they are the superpower of the day. And they almost, that great nation of Assyria, almost conquers Jerusalem. Do you remember that? They almost conquer the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem, but thanks to Hezekiah and his faithfulness and his dependence on the Lord, the Lord turned them back. But the Lord uttered these words. He uttered words to Hezekiah that were at that time somewhat enigmatic. If you look on that map, I'll put a second arrow on that map before I read those words. Is this little part down there in the southeast of Babylonian. 
they were just a, a small little almost know-nothing part of the great Assyrian empire. They've been conquered. They're just a bunch of kind of cities, independent cities in this region of Babylonia that have been conquered, and they've been conquered for over 100 years by Assyria. But if you look at 2 Kings 20, I'll put this on the screen. In 2 Kings 20, if you remember to Hezekiah, during the height of the Assyrian empire under Sennacherib, he uttered these words through Isaiah the prophet. He said, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day shall be carried to, and we would think Assyria, of course. But no, he says, to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says Yahweh. And some of your sons who shall issue from you, whom you shall beget, shall be taken away, and they shall become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. Babylon. That little tiny part of the kingdom of Assyria. This is in about 702 B.C. Babylon's hardly in existence, but here is God's word saying that's what's going to happen. And that's what happens. <laughs> We've seen over and over in the book of Kings that God's word always comes to pass exactly, even though it will be another hundred years. So what happens in the meantime? I'm going to put up another map. I'll have Daniel run this for me. I'll put up another map here that gives you a little broader perspective here. Of, and, and pardon me for some of this history here, but I want you to understand what's happening geopolitically that is in the nation surrounding this, because as I said, it will become a, a major point of our text this morning. Over the next 50 to 75 years, that great nation of Assyria begins to decline with many weak kings. And as they are declining, well, sure enough, that little region that's called Babylon begins to assert itself, begins to challenge the might of Assyria by attacking different cities. And as they begin to rise up, they begin to unite in a challenge Assyria's power. And in 626 B.C., so about, I don't know, 75 years after those words that God had uttered through Isaiah, they, they appoint their first king, Nepopolazar is his name, who actually captures the city of Babylon and makes that will become his capital. And then they join with the Medes. The Medes are a kingdom just to the east there. They join with them. And in 612 B.C., they actually capture and destroy the city of Nineveh. That's the great capital of Assyria. They destroy it, 612 B.C. That's important because you can read about that prediction in the book of Nahum, the Minor Prophets. He talks about the coming destruction of Nineveh, and it indeed happens under this combined force. That causes this great Assyrian kingdom that's dwindling. It begins to retreat, and it's retreating to the west, and it retreats all the way back to the city of Haran and reestablishes there. But the Babylonian force, the Babylonian Median force, they pursue them. And now they're under the combined authority, power of a crown prince named Nebuchadnezzar. He's not king yet, but he is the crown prince, Nebuchadnezzar, who leads the charge. And they retreat all the way to the city of Carchemish. And that's why I have this map up here. They retreat to the city of Carchemish where there's a battle. That city there, it's about 380 miles north of Jerusalem, is where two really important battles in history take place. And we can read about these, not from the Bible, we can read about these from the annals of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. You can read about these battles. So they retreat to Carchemish there, where there is a battle and they are defeated in 609 BC. So I'll put up this first kind of bullet there for you. This Assyrian army is defeated by this combined Babylonian under Nebuchadnezzar, 609 B.C. at this first battle of Carchemish, and that ends the Assyrian Empire. They are no longer the empire. There's really nothing less left of the Assyrians. In the meantime, this other note, as they were retreating, that is, Assyria is retreating to Carchemish, Egypt, under Pharaoh Necho, who is pro-Assyrian, they have this kind of relationship because Assyria kind of leaves them alone, he is coming to the aid. He comes to the aid of the Assyrians, and he's coming up through Judah. And that's where Josiah, the king we saw last week, Josiah tries to stop him and meets him at Megiddo and is killed. 
as Pharaoh Necho is going up to the battle at Carchemish, Josiah is killed. And that's what we read of, if you remember, the last thing we read of at the end of chapter, towards the end of chapter 23, was the sad ending of this greatest king ever of Josiah, that he's killed, age 39, he's dead and he's buried, and they put his son Jehoahaz on the throne. So he's killed. Pharaoh Necho goes to the north, but he doesn't get there in time. Nebuchadnezzar's already defeated the Assyrians, so he retreats and takes up shop there in Riblah. Do you see that city of Riblah? That's where he establishes. So Pharaoh Necho now is kind of controlling this whole region. And now we pick up the story. I'm going to pick it up here in chapter 23, verse 31. Here starts our text this morning. I just want you to see these details with that little bit of background, and then we'll see a little bit more and read the rest of it. But look at verse 31 of chapter 23, and let me read this section. It says, Jehoahaz, that's Josiah's son, was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did evil in the sight of Yahweh, according to all that his fathers had done. And Pharaoh Necho, remember, he's right there in Libna, Riblah, excuse me, imprisoned him at Riblah in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem. And he imposed on the land a fine of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. And Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the place of Josiah, his father, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoahaz away and brought him to Egypt, and he died there. So Jehoiakim gave the silver and the gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land in order to give the money at the command of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and the gold from the people of the land, each according to his valuation to give it to Pharaoh Necho. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibadah, the daughter of Padiah of Rumam, and he did evil in the sight of Yahweh according to all that his fathers had done. So let's stop there. So we get the next two kings, Jehoahaz, three months, and Pharaoh Necho removes him. Probably because he's, remember, he's loyal to his father who tried to stop Egypt. So he just, he removes him. So that means Egypt is in control of this area. Now, this is really sad. Egypt dominates now. Once again, they have risen to power during Assyria's weakness they are pro-Assyrian here. So they remove him. And they, all it says is he took him into exile to Egypt and he died there. We don't know anything. We don't know his burial. We don't know anything that happened. He just died and instead he put another king in his place. His brother, Eliakim, and he changes his name to Jehoiakim. And then he taxes the land. Because that's part of why you control these regions. It's for money. It's for it's a tax. It's for goods, right? They, they control this whole area. And it's, it's sad because it's almost like we're back at the beginning when Israel was in exile to Egypt. They're under the subjugation of Egypt, the Pharaoh again. Pharaoh. That's where we started this whole story. Was Israel under Pharaoh, under bondage? And here they are in their own land under subjection to Pharaoh once again. But Pharaoh is not God's final purpose, now, as we said, it's Babylon. So what happens? Well, if you look back at the map there, what happens next? Well, Pharaoh Necho is in the land, and Nebuchadnezzar, with his Neo-Babylonian empire now, is there too. And there's many skirmishes, but in 605 B.C., there's a final battle, a surprise battle by Nebuchadnezzar, and he defeats Pharaoh Necho, 605 B.C., one of the famous battles in history at Carchemish, he defeats him and he drives him all the way down back to Egypt, to the brook of Egypt. It's basically the Sinai Peninsula, today Saudi Arabia. He drives him all the way back down. Egypt's influence in this land is over and Babylon's influence begins. And so shows up this great figure of Nebuchadnezzar. So now let's look at chapter 24. Let me read the rest of our text here this morning for this background. So it says in verse 24, verse, chapter, excuse me, chapter 24, verse 1, in his days, that is in Jehoiakim's days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up. So this is what he came up. So he's driving Pharaoh down. So he's taking over the region. And he came up, and Jehoiakim has to switch allegiance. He has no choice. And he became his servant for three years. So 
Nebuchadnezzar now subjugates Jerusalem and Judah. By the way, historical note, this is when Daniel and his friends would have been deported back to Babylon. It's right here. This is when this would have about 605 BC is when this would happen. There'll be three different deportations of people from Judah to Babylon. The first one happens right here where Daniel and his friends are taken captive back to Babylon. That was their practice. So he's subjected for three years. And then we read these kind of ominous words there. Then he turned and rebelled against him. About 601 BC, he rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. Now we know that's not going to go well, right? So we're waiting for the consequences of that that are coming. But let's just keep reading. And it says, And Yahweh, the Lord, sent against him, against Jehoiakim, bands of Chaldeans, bands of Arameans, bands of Moabites, bands of Ammonites. So he sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of Yahweh, which he had spoken through his servants, the prophets. Surely at the command of Yahweh, it came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done. And also for the innocent blood which he had shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and Yahweh would not forgive. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiachin, don't get confused, <laughs> very similar, Jehoiachin, his son, became king in his place. And the king of Egypt, that's Pharaoh Necho, did not come out of his land again. For the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Means everything is under Babylonian control. Now that little phrase from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates, that's the same land that Solomon reigned over. And again, it's this great loss. What Solomon, what Israel once had now is completely subject to Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Let's see what happens now. Remember, his father had rebelled. So what's going to happen? Verse 8, Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned for three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of El Nathan of Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. And at that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, you knew they were coming. Here they come. King of Babylon went up to Jerusalem and the city came under siege. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to the city, comes to Jerusalem with his servants while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother and his servants and his captains to the officials. So the king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his, that is Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And he carried out from there all the treasures of the house of Yahweh and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of Yahweh, just as Yahweh said. Where did he say that? Remember back to chapter 20, what we read, that Babylon's going to come and take away all the treasures? Just This is 100 years later. Here it's happening. Verse 14, then he led away into exile all Jerusalem and all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and all the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. So he led Jehoiachin away into exile to Babylon. Also the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials and the leading men of the land. He led away into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon and all the men of valor, 7,000 and the craftsmen and the smiths, 1,000, all strong and fit for war. And these, the king of Babylon brought into exile to Babylon. Then the king of Babylon made his uncle, that is Jehoiachin's uncle, Mataniah, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. This gets confusing, I know. Changed his name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamiltol, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. So he's a full brother of that first king, Jehoahaz. And he did evil in the sight of Yahweh, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For through the anger of Yahweh, this came about in Jerusalem and Judah until he cast them out of his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Again, those ominous words. Now, that, that's the end. Let's stop there. It's the end of our text here this morning. The final four. <laughs> the final four. We're given here the last 
four kings, the final four. That's a good thing in basketball. It's not a good thing in Judah, right? This, the, the final four kings. This is it. Zedekiah will be the last king. So these are the last four kings in Judah, as I said, covering 22 years. And there is a very unusual symmetry to these last four kings. Maybe you picked up on some of that as we read. I'm just going to put them all up there for you so you kind of see this pattern as the Lord brings this nation to an end. Jehoahaz lasted three months, and then he was taken into exile to Egypt. And then he was replaced, we saw, by his brother, Jehoiakim, who will last 11 years, and he's appointed by the foreign king, this time by Necho. His name is changed. It was Eliakim, now it's Jehoiakim. And then we read that he rebels now against Nebuchadnezzar once Nebuchadnezzar takes over. And then it's like it repeats. The next king is Jehoiachin, three months, and he's taken into exile, this time to Babylon. He's replaced by Zedekiah, whose name was Mataniah, 11 years, appointed by the foreign king, Nebuchadnezzar. His name is changed to Zedekiah. And the last thing we read is he rebels. You see it? Three months, 11 years, three months, 11 years. Very similar. The Lord, the Lord is bringing this to an end here. Now, we're not told really anything that these kings did because it doesn't matter. Just the same phrase, some form of this phrase is used four times. Do you see it? We're so used to this in the book of Kings that we get sick of it, really. It's, it's just this constant drip through the book of Kings that is almost monotonous to hear. He did evil in the sight of Yahweh according to all that his fathers had done. Do you, see, do you see it? Back chapter 23, verse 32. That's the one-line summary of Jehoahaz, who only reigned three months. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. Chapter 23, verse 37, when we come to Jehoiakim, now he's going to reign 11 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. Had done. Chapter 24, verse 9. Now we come to the next king, Jehoiachin, three months. He did evil in the sight of Yahweh according to all that his father had done. And then chapter 24, verse 19, the last king, Zedekiah, who was 21 years old, verse 19, he did evil in the sight of Yahweh according to all that Jehoiakim had done. That's it. That's all you need to know. We're not given any details. Just that they were, all you need to know is that they were like Manasseh and they were like Ammon. That's what it means when it says, according to what their fathers had done. Not Josiah, but their fathers, their ancestors, those wicked kings of Judah like Manasseh. They just did the same thing. And again, it's so sad. We, we read of those great reforms of Josiah. How he thoroughly transformed and reformed Judah and all of its worship. And within months, it's, it's gone. All those reforms are undone. They'll just reestablish the high places. They'll do just what Manasseh did. That's the last four kings. What a sad note this is ending on. We're not told any detail. If you, wanna, if you want some more detail about some of the things that these kings done, did, you have to read the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was one of the prophets who, whose ministry was during this time. Jeremiah comes, the word of the Lord comes to him during Josiah, partway through Josiah's reign, and he will minister, he will be a prophet through the exile and himself be taken down into Egypt. So Jeremiah interacts with these kings, and you can read about the folly of some of these kings, like when they burned his scroll. Do you remember that story? That's Jehoiakim. When they imprisoned him in a cistern. That's Zedekiah. These are godless, evil kings who hate his prophets. They even have prophets put to death. So that's all you need to know about them. Our author is not concerned to give us any detail. In fact, what's interesting in this story is the only one who does something in this text that is the main figure here is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's authority and activity are highlighted, right? 
He's the one who has taken over. And so he's the subject of all these verbs there in chapter 24. He removes all of Solomon's treasures from the temple, like God's word has said. All the glory of Israel is lost. He exiles the people. In fact, that word exile is used five times. Five times in verses 14 and 15 and 16 there. That's the main thing, to exile. Remember, that's what these kings did. They didn't just conquer a people. They took them away. They remove them to a foreign land. It's just devastating. It was brilliant, but devastating. They took the best. That's what we read here. They took the, the officials. They took the king and his family into exile. We'll have to see what happens with him. They took all the artisans. They took the skilled craftsmen. They took the men of war because these will benefit Babylon. They will enculturate them as the plan into Babylonian culture and empire, like Daniel and his friends, how they benefited the kingdom of Babylon. That was their tactic, but it was also so they would never rebel again. Now, they don't repopulate the land. They just leave some of the poorest of the land. So Nebuchadnezzar is in charge here. He's the one doing all the action. It's almost over, isn't it? It's almost over. Many have been exiled. The king is gone. And yet, at the end, Jerusalem's still there. The temple's still there. And there's still a Davidic king on the throne. So it's hanging on. But the curtain will come down next chapter. So we'll, we'll save that. The end. So that's the chapter. As I said, it's not very exciting. But we want to ask the question, like we always do, what is the author's emphasis in recounting the final four kings in this way? What's his point? What's his emphasis? What's he teaching? Or to ask it another way, who is the real actor, the primary actor in this account? It's not Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> it is the Lord. That's what the author, I think, wants us to see, at least one of the things he wants to see. Pharaoh Necho and this great Nebuchadnezzar are merely instruments of judgment in the Lord's hands. Who's really acting here? Who's really carrying out his purpose? It is the Lord through these nations. Through these nations. That's the author's emphasis. We want to see that here. As I said many times through our series of Kings, the Bible is real history. What happens here really happens. This is real history. As I said, you can read about it with Nebuchadnezzar. You can read about the Battle of Carchemish. You can read about the subjugation of Judah. You can read about these things and other. This is real history. It really happened. But the Bible is much more than just history. It is prophetic narrative. That's what we've called the book of Kings. It's actually part of the prophets. It's actually not part of the history section of the Bible. It's part of the prophetic section of the Bible. It's, it's prophetic narrative with a theological perspective meant for our instruction. It's meant to teach us. And so always, while there are political, military, economic reasons for all that happens, just like in our day, yet, yet, God is orchestrating every piece in fulfillment of his purposes according to his word. That's what the author wants us to see. Yes, all this stuff is happening in the nations around. And there are military reasons for it. There are economic reasons. That's usually what drives this conquering. There are political reasons for why... Babylon comes to power. Why Pharaoh Necho is in the land. Why he is subjugated. Why... Babylon ascends. There's reasons for all of that, but the author wants to see behind all of it, behind all of those things, God is orchestrating. God's hand is moving to accomplish his purposes according to his word. And his purpose here, specifically in our text, is the irreversible judgment of Judah. That's why Nebuchadnezzar's reigning. That's why Pharaoh Necho reigned for a season. 
His purpose is the judgment of Judah. He is bringing it to pass according to his word. Now, let me show it to you. That I think this is what the author wants us to see. So look back at the text. I'll put a few of these up on the screen for you if you don't have a text in front of you. Verse 2 of chapter 24. Notice it. Who's, who's the actor here? Who's, who's in control? It says, verse 2, And Yahweh sent against him, that is, against Jehoiakim, the bands of the Chaldeans, the bands of the Arameans, the bands of the Moabites, the bands of the Ammonites. So he sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of Yahweh, which he had spoken through his servants, the prophets. Do you see it? Who's doing it? Yahweh sent them. Yahweh sent them. Now they think they're coming on for all those reasons I just mentioned. But who's sending them? Yahweh is sending them. Another place he says he's whistling. <laughs> he whistles his instrument from the east to come. He's sending them. Verse 3, look at it. Surely at the command or the mouth of Yahweh, it came upon Judah. He's decreed it. He's commanding it to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh. So he is doing this. And then to summarize, look all the way down to verse 20. The last verse this is how the chapter ends. For through the anger of Yahweh, this came about in Jerusalem and Judah until he cast them out of his presence. Through the anger of Yahweh, that's his wrath, this came about. What came about? Everything that's really unfolding here, including the appointment of Zedekiah and his foolish rebellion, all that happens with Nebuchadnezzar and with Pharaoh Necho, it comes about through the anger of Yahweh. He is orchestrating this for his purposes. That's the perspective of the author. You're not going to get that in a history book. You get it from the Bible. The Bible teaches us how to read history, if you will. It gives us this point. So what are the implications? I'm just going to leave you two implications from our text this morning of these final four kings. The first one is this. What we've just seen. God is sovereign over the nations. God is sovereign over the nations. We haven't highlighted that as much through the book of Kings, but it's all through the book of Kings. Because God's people, under the old covenant, is a nation. It's a political, geographic nation by God's design. Which means God's working with the nation is going to involve lots of other nations. There's thought about that. God designed nations. That was God's purpose. He has a grand purpose in nations. We live in nations today. We're part of nations. It's the way history has always unfolded. That's really remarkable in itself. And God is sovereign, not just over Israel and Judah, but over the nations. Now, as we read the Bible, as we read this part of Kings, obviously the focus is on Israel and Judah, God's covenant people, what's happening through them. But what happens through them is dependent on other nations and God is sovereign. What do I mean by he is sovereign? This note, the rise and fall and actions of nations are under his rule for his purposes. The rise, the fall, the size, the length, the boundaries... The activities of nations are under his rule for his purposes. Paul preaching in Acts to the Athenians in the city of Athens, making this point, speaking of the true God, he said he made from one every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Get that. God made every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitations. God has. He's sovereign. He rules over rise, fall, activities, length, size of nations. So in our text this morning, the rise of Egypt under Pharaoh Necho and then the rise of Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar are by his hand. 
as instruments, I said, of his judgment. There are many, many numerous factors that bring these nations to power. And we could analyze those. And we did a little bit, just historically. But God is the ultimate cause. That's what our author wants us to see. They exist by his will. They exist for his purpose. That's the point. He rules over all kings. We're told in Proverbs, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it wherever he wishes. Do you believe that? Even today, he turns it wherever he wishes. He rules over kings and leaders and nations. And he wants us to know that. As his people, he wants us to know that. One of the ironies of this text of this ruler, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, we know quite a bit about Nebuchadnezzar because of the book of Daniel, don't we? We see Nebuchadnezzar. God wanted Nebuchadnezzar to know this. He wanted Nebuchadnezzar to know this. Do you remember that? So I won't read all of Daniel. Go back and read Daniel. But as Daniel interacts with this great king, Nebuchadnezzar, do you remember one of those visions he has? This is Daniel chapter 4. He has one of those visions of that tree, and, and uh, basically it's, it's a vision. He, he doesn't understand it, what's going to happen to him, how he's going to become like a beast and eat grass and have dew on him and have the mind of a beast. Remember that vision? He's perplexed by that. I'll put this on the screen here. But right in that, what was the purpose of, of God doing this to Nebuchadnezzar? He says this phrase a few times. Here's in verse 17 of Daniel chapter 4. In order that the living may know, that's you and me and Nebuchadnezzar, that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes. That's why I'm doing this, Nebuchadnezzar. In all your pride and arrogance, you will know who rules the nations and who puts kings on thrones and who removes them from thrones. And that's what happened. As Nebuchadnezzar was boasting about the might of his great kingdom of Babylon, God drove him out, made him like a beast of the field. His reason left him. Becomes insane. Eats grass. And then his reason returns. By God's grace. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar concludes. This is at the end of chapter 4. He said, my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. No one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? He learned it. He learned what God wants to teach us. He is sovereign over nations and over kings. When he says that, you see that phrase? All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. We're not to be impressed with empires, with world powers, but with God. Be really impressed with God because all of that great might is like nothing. And Isaiah says it's like, it's like grasshoppers before him. It's like a speck of dust on the scale. Be very impressed with God who rules the nations. And no one thwarts his purpose. No Nebuchadnezzar, no Pharaoh, no ruler today. He is sovereign, not earthly kingdom. So Nebuchadnezzar learns his lesson. And listen, the, the point of that whole story, if I can read it, is it is insane to deny this truth. Reason Reason acknowledges that God is sovereign. Now, let me go back to that point. Just give you two, two other things under this. God is sovereign over the nations. It's obvious. I want to highlight this. This includes the use of evil rulers for his righteous purposes. This is hard. 
It is hard. But it includes the use of evil rulers, godless rulers for his righteous purposes. We can read over, you know, these kings because it's just Bible stories. And but these Assyrian kings and Babylonian kings were brutal. They were godless tyrants, dictators who massacred thousands of civilians in their conquering. These are evil rulers. And they were God's instruments. It's really shocking. God calls them that. The man of my purpose. That's what he calls Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. My chosen instrument. It's really remarkable. It was so remarkable that the prophet Habakkuk, who is alive right at the same time, right at the end of Judah here, Habakkuk is complaining about the unrighteousness of these kings. He's complaining about what's happening in Judah. He's saying, God, would you do something? You don't do anything. Would you do something? God says, I'm going to do something. And when you hear of it, you won't believe it. Because I'm going to raise up Babylon to conquer my people. And Habakkuk can't believe it. Now Habakkuk has a bigger problem. How could you, the holy God, use such a wicked instrument for your purpose? And God said, I want you to live by faith, Habakkuk. Don't worry, I'll hold him guilty, but I will use him. That's what the book of Habakkuk is about. If you want to read that this afternoon, it's a great little book. He's able to direct sin and evil for his righteous and good purposes. That's really hard for us to believe when when Hitler's and Stalin's come to rule. That God has any part in it. He does. Working his purposes. And he is untainted by evil. It's part of this mystery of his providence. And ultimately, that's good news for us because, do you know, that leads to the gospel. Because it's God's appointment that the very death of Jesus will come about through evil rulers. Isn't it? Acts 4, I put that as a cross-reference up there. That surely in this city there were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed Jesus, King Herod. Pilate, Romans, the Gentiles, to do what? To do whatever your hand predestined to occur, which is kill Jesus, bring about salvation. That's remarkable. Last note here. Kings and nations are accountable and judged for their actions. They're not mere puppets going against their will. They're carrying out exactly what they want to do, like Nebuchadnezzar does, and all their pride and arrogance. And God is directing and working in and through their evil to accomplish his purpose and then holds them guilty for what they have done. That, again, is remarkable for us. We don't grasp, we can't get our head around that and understand that fully, how, how God works in and through Evil actions like these to accomplish his righteous purposes and holds them guilty, holds them accountable. But it's all through the Bible. They're not getting away with anything. It's not that God condones evil actions. He appoints, he uses, he orchestrates, he wills, and he holds them responsible and guilty. Here's here's what's stunning. He holds them guilty for the very actions that he ordains. That's an Isaiah 10 reference, speaking of Assyria and those great kings that God used. And he says, when I'm done using you, then I'm going to judge your arrogant heart. That's what he says. It's just remarkable. And we're meant to just step back and stand in awe. God rules the nations. Do you believe that? That is still true today, folks. It is still true. He is sovereign. It is meant for our comfort. It's meant for our confidence. 
It doesn't mean we condone actions of evil rulers. We don't. It doesn't mean we should never resist. We should. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be involved in government like in our nation and seeking right change. That's a great thing to be involved in. But it means our ultimate confidence is not in those things. It is in God. And we take great comfort like Daniel did as he lived there in Babylon. God is sovereign over nations. Do you believe that? Maybe this last election didn't go the way you wanted. Do you believe it? That he appoints, that he governs, that he rules, that he's accomplishing his purposes. Whether it's Putin or China, God is sovereign. That's what we take away here. We stand in awe and we take comfort. Now I finish with the second implication. I'll finish quickly here. Because this is probably the main point of these four kings in this section. Number two, God's wrath towards sin is unrelenting. His wrath towards sin is unrelenting. That is, it's, it's, it's certain, it's inescapable, it's not weakened. Now, this has been the chief point of this whole last part of Kings. That this judgment of God is irrever- It's coming. Judah's judgment is irreversible. They have passed the point of no return under the sins of Manasseh. And when we talk about God's sovereignty over nations like Egypt and like Babylon, remember in this text, he is sovereign over those nations for the purpose of his judgment. And that's what's coming. And that's sobering. So just note these two things. His just judgment for sin is irreversible. That is, it will be expressed. There are two pretty frightening phrases in this chapter that catch you when it comes to God's judgment. The first is found at the end of verse 4 of chapter 24. Just, just notice this phrase. This coming judgment by the Lord, and it says at the end, and Yahweh was unwilling to forgive. That's literally what it says. It's the word for will. He's unwilling to forgive. He doesn't want to forgive here. We don't read those words very much at all in the Bible. And those, those shock us. They stand out because we see so much of God's readiness to forgive. His, his delight to show mercy. He's full of mercy. He delights to show mercy. He forgives thousands. That's the description of God. So when we read things like this, it arrests us. He, he was unwilling to forgive. Because those descriptions of God that speak of the greatness of his mercy also go on to say that he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, the unrepentant. His wrath will come. It is an issue of justice. In this case, Manasseh has slaughtered thousands of innocents. God will bring justice. We we need to hear it. Because people today can have this wrong conception that I'm just hoping and then God will be more kind than he is just. God will be true to who he is. And his judgment is irreversible for sin. He will, the last point, he will remove sinners from his sight into final judgment. That's the other phrase that is arresting in this text. He says it twice, verse 3 Surely at the command of Yahweh, it came about to remove them from his sight because of his sins. And then in verse 20, the anger of the Lord, through the anger of the Lord, this came about in Judah and Jerusalem until he cast them out of his sight. Those are just sobering words. They're frightening words. Get out of my sight. I hope no one's ever said that to you. But you know what it means. I can't look on you. I'm going to cast them out of my sight, he says. Into judgment. This is the withdrawal of God's favor. The the turning away of his face. And that's the description of judgment. It's the same description Paul uses in 2 Thessalonians 1. Of those who disobey the gospel. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord. 
The Lord's face is his favor. It is his grace. We read it in Psalm 104 this morning when the Lord turns his face away from creation. It dies. The ultimate horror is to be cast out of his sight. No more mercy. Only judgment. So these are just, they're, they're frightening words, aren't they? They're sobering and they're meant to sober us as we read under the New Covenant, New Testament readers. These are meant to be a warning for us. Remember, these are God's people here. We are professors of Christ here. And yet there's this warning throughout Scripture. Are we in Christ? I close with but are perhaps more frightening words. I know this is sobering, but it's part of the text and it's part of the Bible. It's part of what God wants us to hear. And these are the words of Jesus himself, Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. And here it is, depart from me, out of my presence, for I never knew you, he said. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Those are sobering words. That these descriptions of judgment are meant to mourn us. Are we in Christ? There is an escape. We've said it all along through this book from this inevitable wrath of God. And it is Jesus. It is the cross of Christ because that wrath has been spent. Are we in him this morning? Are you in Christ? Where the smile of God is towards you. Because your sin has been removed. Oh, how great that is. That he looks on us with favor because of Christ. Take warning and be sure that we are in him. Let me pray for us and we'll close. Oh, Father, these are, are sobering descriptions. They're sobering words. Lord, I pray you just use them as you see fit this morning in our lives. We thank you that you're sovereign over nations, that you rule. May we take comfort in that. We know that judgment is coming. We know it's inevitable and irreversible. May it motivate us to share this good news even with others and to the nations that you have created. To find refuge in the Son today. To find forgiveness of sin that you would turn your face towards us because you turned your face away from your Son in your wrath all for us. We thank you for Jesus and we cling to him. We bless you in his name. Amen.